the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. My co-host Brian is on a sweet vacation, so it's just me and you, listeners. And it's the new year. Happy New Year! Some of you, I wonder if you are starting to take down your Christmas decorations. Some of you, they'll probably be up until Valentine's Day. But either way, we are headed into the new year, and I hope you are feeling hopeful and expectant for what God has for you. So we can't uh, enter the new year without talking about New Year's resolutions. And I am not a great resolution gal, meaning I'm not, what do I mean by I'm not great, but I'm not consistent. So there have been years where I'm like, okay, this is the year I'm going to memorize a lot of Bible verses. That was a couple years ago. And I actually did that. I got this. A subscription, I think it's called Dwell. You can find it on Instagram if you want to, where they send like um, temporary tattoos with Bible verses on them and little cards. And actually, it really, really helps you memorize the scripture. And then, you know, people think you have a cool tattoo. So that's kind of fun. Um, but, you know, other years, I don't really set a goal. I just kind of, I, I kind of say, oh, it would be great if this year I did X, Y, Z. Um, and I've never been one of those word people. Here's my word for the year. I tried one year and I just realized I was I don't know. I'm already kind of an overachiever and I was just causing myself to like get more exhausted and achieve more. And I was like, well, that can't be it. It's something, something about the new year's has to be less achievement and more peace, at least for me. So I don't know if you're a new year's resolution or new year's word person. I'd love to hear from you on our social media at common good talk on Facebook. Let me know. But I did uh, open up our old friend chat GPT and just said, all right, how do I plan a new year's resolution? So here's a step-by-step guide from um, AI. Uh, and I actually appreciate this first one. Uh, step one, reflect on the past year. Start by looking back on the past and assessing your achievements, challenges, and areas where you'd like to improve. This reflection will help you identify you, what you want to change or work on in the coming year. I love that concept. So reflect on the past year. Like, what did you actually do well? What was a challenge? What did you see God do that was amazing? What's a growth area that you uh, feel like God might be inviting you into? I know one of the things I've been thinking about this year is reflecting on how sometimes when I'm not in a great place, like a little bit of an unhealthy place, I can begin to people please a lot. Like I'll say yes when I mean no. And I try to rescue people from their own emotions when maybe they actually need to go on some emotional journey. And that's not a healthy version of me. So that's something that I'm actually reflecting on like, okay, Lord, I think this year you might be inviting me to grow in that, not be a people pleaser as much. So that feels very adulty of me. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Reflect on the past year. Uh, Number two, 
set specific and realistic goals. I like this one because, you know, instead of making vague resolutions, if you're actually specific about what you want to achieve, you're more likely to do it. Uh, and I don't know if they'll say this later, but I think and grab a friend to hold you accountable. Uh, you know, lots of people want to lose weight this year. I think that's an example where, um, you know, you could say, I want to get in shape. I want to get strong. Or you could say, okay, I'm going to lift five more pounds by the end of this month than I am right now because I've been working on building my muscles by doing push-ups. Or I don't know, that's maybe a terrible one. But there are ways, I think, to be specific. Instead of three-pound weights, I'm going to use six-pound weights and I'm going to feel my muscles get stronger. Instead of walking 20 minutes on the treadmill, I'm going to walk 30 minutes on the treadmill each day. Like That kind of thing, I think, is helpful to... um you know, be more specific when it comes to setting goals. Prioritize your goals. Uh, I think ultimately what you don't want to do is lead to burnout and then you're just over it. So like maybe pick one, pick two, pick the most important ones and and start there rather than I'm going to do this and this and this and the. Here's the one thing I would like to accomplish this year. Uh, break down your goals. You know, there's all of that research now on how tiny habits um makes such a difference in creating a new big habit. So for instance, in the, I think it's actually the book, Tiny Habits, the author talks about, instead of saying, I'm going to floss my teeth every single night, start with flossing one tooth at a time and then celebrating after each tooth. Yay, I flossed one tooth. That's kind of a, a funny way to think about it. But the idea of breaking down your goals, your resolutions into smaller actionable steps or milestones that obviously makes your goals more manageable. And then you can track your progress and you can celebrate along the way. Next would be create a plan. I think that seems obvious, but we don't always do that. Like, I think you have to put your resolution into your calendar. So if you keep a Google calendar, if you keep a paper calendar and your resolution is you're going to read the Bible, you know, for five minutes every morning, 15 minutes every morning, put it in the calendar, set the time and actually do it. Um, they also say make a timeline. I think that's kind of in the same. So you've got a plan, you've got a timeline. Like, how am I going to track the milestone milestones or steps towards the goal? What's my deadline by which I will have reached this part and then this part and then this part? Monitor and track your progress. I think that's really a good idea. Regularly review your resolutions. You can use a journal, smartphone app, other tracking tools. I've heard there are apps for goal setting. I've never actually used one, but that might be helpful. Maybe that's going to be my New Year's resolution. Get an app for goal setting and use it. Uh, number eight, adjust and adapt. This is so good. It's normal to face setback and challenges. Be flexible. Be open. Adjust your goals and your plans as needed. Oh, here's number nine. This is what I was hoping for. Seek support and accountability. Share your resolutions with friends, with families, with a supportive community who can hold you accountable and uh, help you stay motivated. And that moves into 10. Stay motivated. Uh, ChatGPT said this could include rewarding yourself for reaching milestones, visualizing your success, finding a support system to keep on track. I know a lot of people, you know, have have really like uh, they accomplish a lot when they create a kind of a mood board, a dream board. Like here's where I want to be, or yeah, that okay, if I reach this milestone, I'm going to take myself on a trip or take myself out to dinner, or go to the movie I've been waiting for or something like that. That can be fun. 11, this is huge. Stay consistent. Whoo, 
Consistency is the key to achieving your New Year's resolutions. Make a commitment to working on your goals regularly, even when motivation wanes. I think that's huge. And then celebrate your achievements. I said that, but don't forget to celebrate your successes no matter how small they seem. Also remember, like you don't have to be legalistic about your goals. Celebrate them, set and revise them as necessary. Work on becoming the best version of yourself. Be graceful with yourself in the meantime. So let me uh, repeat these, all 12 of them. Reflect on the past year. That's number one. Number two, set specific and realistic goals. Number three, prioritize your goals. Number four, break down your goals. Number five, create a plan. Number six, make a timeline. Number seven, monitor and track your progress. Number eight, adjust and adapt. Number nine, seek support and accountability. Number 10, stay motivated. Number 11, stay consistent. And number 12, celebrate your achievements. Recognizing your progress will give you the motivation to keep going. Well, hey, everybody, happy new year. We're already a couple days into 2024, which is so unbelievable. I hope whatever it is you're kind of setting your mind to, setting your will to, praying about, sensing God leading you to, that you're able to start off the new year on a really meaningful track and celebrate yourself along the way. Happy new year, everybody. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, as we all know by now, it is officially 2024. Hopefully you're entering the new year with a lot of energy. Hey, if you're entering the new year with some fear, some trepidation, I'll actually talk about the, that later, maybe ways that we can surrender our fear and our anxiety about the new year to the Lord. But some of us have some fear and trep- trepidation because we are officially in the new election year coming this November, which I feel like is going to fly. It's going to be so fast we will be in an election. I can't even believe it. And already, we all know the conversations are starting and uh, the the conversations are going to only get more and more and more, I'm guessing, intense. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how the year goes. But uh, Propel Women last year, they actually posted something that I kept in my phone. I thought it was really helpful. Um And it's this, four ways to pray for politicians, even the politicians that you don't like. So uh, this is by Denise Gitchum. She works at the intersection of law, policy, media, and politics. So wow, what a role she's in. She has a deep conviction to not just pray for the political arena, but to approach it with love and kindness. She writes this, God showed me how Christians should engage in the political realm And it begins with praying God's will for ourselves and our political leaders. So she says, praying for politicians, including the ones we can't stand. She offers four ways to do that. And let me share with you some of those ways. Um, The first is this. Our motivation for praying into the political realm must always be rooted in God's love for the world and for his people. I think that's actually really helpful to think about uh you know if you're if you're praying about politics those prayers should be rooted in the fact that God loves this world, God loves uh the people in this world. God is moving towards people with love. And so sometimes I think you know our our politics can be fueled by hate. 
our politics can be fueled, you know, by bitterness or by a competition or even by a sense of fear. We're very afraid about what the outcomes might be of the next political election. And so I think as we pray in the political realm, just to kind of root your posture and root your heart and root your soul, root your mind, root your body in God's love for the world and God's love for his people. Like remind yourself, look, God, God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. And so I'm going to pray for our politicians and even pray for my own heart and pray for the politics of this world for, through that lens, assuming that God loves this country, assuming that God loves this world. Number two, seeking God's will requires I put my will for my country second. That to me is pretty convicting. Whatever country you're in, obviously here in America, we know that we tend to put our will for our nation before anything else. We put it before God's will for our nation. We put it before our will for other things. Like a lot of us hold that up as kind of the you know, the ultimate mm, platform on which we stand. But I think this is interesting. Like if I want to know God's will for my country, it means I put my will for my country second. I put God's will for this country first. That might be submission. That might mean dying to self. That might be changing the way you think about certain politics. That might mean letting go of control and outcome and fear and trusting that God is in control. I don't know what that will look like for you, but I think that's a really important thing to remember. Seeking God's will requires, I put my will for my country second. Number three, pray for the welfare of cities, states, and nations. For the sake of ourselves, as well as our leaders, I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, as you pray for the welfare of the city, that's something that uh, Jeremiah told us to do. Pray for the welfare of states and of nations. We, we're doing so for the sake of those leading, but we're also doing so for the citizens. I mean, I think that's really important. Let's pray for our political leaders to bless and flourish the citizens that they're leading over. Let's pray that our political leaders would be servants and would think about what's best for the common good of the city, the state, the the area that they rule over, lead. I think that's really interesting. Number four, pray for our leaders with honor and respect. Whoo! regardless of whether we think they're worthy of it. I think that's a tricky one. And I'll be honest, I don't totally know how to do that. Like, I think sometimes I might say, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for this particular leader that I disagree with on these policies. You're going to have to give me the the ability to do that with, with honor and with respect, because I don't have a lot of respect for this person right now. And I think the Lord can change your heart or the Lord can, you know, this is what's hard is I think it's actually okay to be like, you know what? I don't, I don't respect this leader. Like, I don't respect their character. I don't respect the things they've said. I don't respect their stances. And even to say to the Lord, hey, that's true. I'm not going to pretend like it's not true. Would you guide them with your will? There's a psalm. Actually, I think it's a proverb that talks about how the Lord, just as the Lord changes the rivers, the Lord can change a king's heart. And I often think about that when I hear Christians talking about the politicians that they disagree with or really don't like or call clowns or whatever. Well, what if we began to pray that the Lord would change that politician's heart, change that politician's motive? It seems like an impossible prayer, but our God dabbles in the impossible, right? That's where God works. So if we prayed in faith that God would move our politician's heart, 
towards his will and his way and the betterment of our nation's flourishing and to be a servant sacrificial leader instead of a power hungry leader. I, you know, who knows what God might do, especially if a lot of Christians gathered and prayed in that way. So praying for politicians, including the ones we can't stand. I, I'll be honest, like, I'm not sure that I am someone who I have prayed about elections, like presidential elections in particular. I've certainly prayed that, you know, certain policies would get passed or not get passed, but I don't know that it's a regular, I know it's not, it's not a regular part of my prayer life to pray for political leaders. Like if I think about my prayer journal, it's the new year. Many of us are starting prayer journals again. I get a new journal every Christmas and then I started in January. I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for my church. I'm praying for my own needs. Um, I'm praying for, you know, friends, things like that, but I definitely am not lifting up political leaders. So that might be interesting in a, in a political year to pray for, you know, to pray for our politicians, to pray, like we talked about that they would come to know saving uh, power of Jesus Christ, that they would submit their, um, wills to Jesus, pray that they would uh, lead and rule in a way that honors Jesus and is good for, you know, the the people that they're actually serving, not just about themselves. I, you know, I think there's ways to consider that in the new year. It might be interesting just to see what God does. Uh, if you want to find out more, you can go to propelwomen.org and you can see Denise Gitchum's article. Um but it, this is what's interesting. She says this. She says, I'm not the best person to speak about praying for politicians we dislike, though by now I should be. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've worked in politics for the past 25. One would assume that based on the descriptors, I've got the whole, quote, praying for politicians thing down. But thankfully, truthfully, she says, I still struggle with praying for those I dislike or disagree with. That's what I said. She said, sometimes I confess I'm more likely to curse than bless the ones I wish were out of office. But she says, God has tenderized her heart. This is a quote, the callousness cultivated by years of fighting and vicious partisan trenches softened as I grew more aware of the political spirit raging within me. Jesus is warning to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod struck at the religiosity and hyper-partisanship that fueled much of my political career and led me further from the love and grace Jesus calls us toward. That's pretty powerful right there. So after doing things for a long way, doing the wrong thing, the wrong way, for a very long time, she says, I sought the Lord's forgiveness as well as his wisdom. And that's where she, you know, begins to remind us of those four ways to pray. Um, again, uh, start with love. Assume that God loves us and loves, uh, loves our country, loves our people, and loves the globe. I think that's important, too. We can also get so nation-focused. We forget to remember God loves the whole world. Um, we're putting God's will first. Uh, before ours, we're praying for the welfare of the cities and the nations, uh, not just for ourselves, but for our leaders and for those, our neighbors, our communities. And then this one's so hard. Pray for leaders with honor and respect, whether or not we think they're worthy of it. She she quotes Romans 13, one, all authority comes from God. She quotes First Peter to honor the king. And she says, while we can disagree to work 
We can disagree and work to replace them through our democratic processes, which I'm grateful we can do where I live. We must treat those God puts in authority over us the way he tells us to. Doing so is admittedly challenging, especially in the current political environment. But she reminds us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means that his instructions applies to all times and all circumstances. I think the other thing about that is it just reminds us who's actually in control. Again, when we get afraid of the political climate or the outcome of an election, we can trust like Jesus Christ is our king and that's who we serve. So as we pray, we're praying under the banner of the true king of kings and as citizens of his kingdom. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. So we talked about New Year's resolutions. We talked about praying for our politicians. Now we're going to talk about fear and anxiety, especially as it's related to the new year and all of the kind of unforeseen outcomes that are going to happen this year. Um, a lot of us can can fear feel fearful about those things or begin to um, experience a lot of anxiety about the unknown, uh, what's to come and what might or might not happen. And our brains can kind of, you know, ruminate over those things again and again. And I know for a lot of us, as we start out the new year, it sure would be nice to be able to get a little bit less afraid, a little bit less anxious. By the way, if you've missed any of the podcast today, those conversations we've already talked about, be sure to go back. And, or if you've missed the radio show, be sure to go back and catch up on the podcast. Um, but let's dive into how to deal with fear and anxiety. I, this is something that I, I have learned over the past year. We have to avoid avoidance, if that makes sense. Like the only way to deal with fear is to face it. And I think though we have to face it with the right coping mechanisms and we have to face it with healthy people by our side, safe people by our side, and like not dive into something that's so overwhelming you're going to collapse the rest of the day, but at little bits at a time. I was, uh, I, I mentioned this in a sermon I preached last year, but I was reading about how the way that lions hunt, you might know this, but, um, you know, obviously the lion is famous for his roar and the lionesses are famous for being the hunter gatherers in their, um, packs. What I didn't know, this was new information for me. I didn't know that part of their strategy for hunting is that the lion roars to scare the animals and the, so the prey, you know, they get skittish, they hear the roar and they run in the opposite direction of the roar. Okay. But what they're doing in doing that is running straight to the lionesses who are crouching and ready to jump at them because they've gotten alone, they've gotten isolated, and they've run straight to where the danger is. And I think there's something really, really spiritually, you know, metaphorical about that, that sometimes we're running away from the roar, the thing that feels scary and loud. But as we do that, we're actually running into danger. Like as we run away from the big, scary thing, we're actually running towards isolation and loneliness. And that's when we get vulnerable. And that's when the enemy actually comes after us. So sometimes with the Spirit's help and our community's help, I actually think we need to grab hold of our bravery and run towards the roar. Because as we face it, that thing has less power in our lives and becomes less scary in our lives. I know my friend Justin, who his wife Jen died, she was one of my best friends, just just kind of past the year anniversary of that now in January, um, died from breast cancer. He was talking about how for him, 
a, a couple like kind of extended family members had died after Jen died. And he was like, I cannot go to these funerals. Like, this is going to be so scary for me. I'm not going to do it. But he felt like, and this doesn't have to be true for everybody, but for him, he felt like actually, man, if I don't step out and go to these funerals, even for a little bit, I'm not going to stay for long. I'm not going to linger and talk with family. I'm going to go and then I'm going to leave. If I can't take those steps, like this is going to have control over me. Like this type of fear is going to have control over me. So he really committed to running towards the roar and just like, I think allowed those things to have less power. Now, again, you have to do that when you feel right and you feel like God is calling you to. But my other friend, Davey, I mean, this is a dark story to talk about on New Year's, but um and he's a co-host of a, another podcast I do called the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Davy's wife was killed just tragically while Davy was at the gym. And so it took him a very long time to go back to the gym. Like that was just really, really, you know, terrifying thing for him. But he loved the gym. He loved the um kind of that endorphin, you know, that it brought. And that was a hobby of his. And so he eventually was like, I have to run towards the roar, started going back to the gym again. And, you know, these are, these are steps you take in the right time, of course, with your fear, your anxiety, and your grief, but avoiding avoidance is one way for the, the fear to like, not have as much power over you. Um, another thing I think is, and this may sound a little cheesy, but this idea of positivity, like like having an, that attitude of gratitude, promoting positivity, having a posture of positivity. I, I, you know, this one is one where I have to be really intentional to like, okay, how can I get really deliberate to joy hunt, right? Seek out delight. Like, how can I notice when I'm laughing? And that's a really good thing. How can I think about, this is hard in Chicago in winter, but the pleasure of a sunny day, or even in Chicago winter, like the beauty of candles lit all around my house. How can I find humor in a situation or, or beauty in nature or, um, you know, go to the gym, go on a walk, do read a great book and, and try to promote positivity because what fear does is it causes us to both remember negative events, but then ruminate over them. And we begin to think about all of the negative events that might possibly happen, but none of those things are true. I have a friend, Jeannie Stevens, who says like, look, the past is not happening. The future is not happening. And what we do in our fear and anxiety is we rehash the past or we rehearse fears of the future, but none of those things are true. Like you're just dwelling in fantasy or dwelling in lies. What's here now is what's true. What's in the present is the only thing that's actually happening right now. And that's kind of a mind blowing thing, although it's a little bit of an obvious thing too. But I think in our fear and our anxiety, we can go rehashing the past. We can ruminate over all of these things that may or may not go wrong in the future. But what if we were in the present moment practicing positivity, practicing gratefulness, even just for a time, right? Oh, how our fear might shrink. Our anxiety might shrink in those moments when we're able to be present and positive. Jeannie talks about, you know, uh, pause for just a minute. If you find yourself going to the past or going to the present, pause and just think about what you're thinking. What am I thinking about right now? What are my thoughts right now? Okay, let, let's bring my thoughts here to the present. What's my heart feeling right now? 
you know, put your hand on your heart and think about that. What am I, what am I feeling right now? What's in my body right now? Do I feel tense in my shoulders? Am I carrying tension in my feet? Like, and, and all that does is sort of bring you back to the present moment so that you stop dwelling on your fear and anxiety, even if it's just for a few minutes. Another thing that you can do is, is to ask God to help you make meaning from your fear and anxiety or, or meaning from your pain. Sometimes, um, you know, fear shatters our sense of the world as we know it. If you've experienced trauma, you can feel guilt sometimes about that. Even if it's illogical, you can feel guilt about being a trauma survivor. Um, and if you've got anxiety, if you've got fear, I think sometimes it's really important to find healing through meaning. Like if you can begin to uh, make meaning from the trauma, from the pain, from the grief, from the heartache, from the fear, like what, how might God use that in your life to give you empathy and compassion for yourself and for other people? Maybe there's something you can create like a, a piece of art, a a song, a poem, a, a, you know, cut out collage, make a magazine collage, something like that. Like there are different ways based on our personalities to make meaning in the middle of our, our fear and our pain. And that can be a real, real powerful step towards healing, get support. I mean, we need, that's the hard part, fear, anxiety, grief, all of it. It can make you feel so disconnected from other people. And so I would just say, get a good, safe, healthy, friends around you. I think the weird part too is you kind of learn in seasons like that, like who are your people and who aren't your people. And I think sometimes you also have to just let go of the ones who aren't instead of trying to be like, why didn't they show up for me? Or why? What's wrong? Like kind of just let that go. Be thankful for the people you do have and pursue those relationships. And then I, I would also say practice self-compassion, self-care, like what I don't know, go for a walk, get good rest, drink some really good hot chocolate, uh, eat a good hearty soup, like take a bath, um, exercise. I might've said that one already. Like what are the things that, that help care for you? And also I think not just doing things, but have a mindset, like wrap a blanket around yourself and just have a mindset of like, I'm going to be gentle with myself today. All of those steps can go a long way in assisting in you uh, finding healing or at least a little bit of healing, a step towards healing in fear and anxiety in the new year. Hey, you're listening to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. Stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. Uh, one of the things that Brian loves joking about me is that my book, it's called The Louder Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament, was number one and number two in the category of Christian death. He always says that should be my band name, Christian death. But actually, this concept of lament is something I'm very passionate about. Um, I, you know... I tend to think that at least in the evangelical West, we have a pretty anemic theology of suffering and we haven't been formed in how to even spiritually handle our pain and our suffering. And so as we're starting out the new year, I don't want us to be so negative. There's amazing things that God has in store for you this year. But as we all know, we carry devastation and we look around the world. We can't ignore the suffering and the heartache of the world. And what's so, you know, I think incredibly beautiful is that we have a God who not only allows us to lament, but invites our laments and has given us the biblical language and the spiritual practice of lament 
But the hard part is a lot of us don't know what lament is. I think sometimes we use lament sort of generally just to mean sadness or grief, but a lament is different than that. Um, because lament is actually the articulation or the expression of grief, heartache. Laments throughout the Bible are known as impolite pleas. And you see a lot of the, the laments in scripture are using language about God and to God that we would not use. Like uh, Jeremiah in his Lamentations, he talks about God as a bear waiting to attack him. He says, God has broken my bones. God has pulled out my teeth. He talks about how God has turned out the lights. Usually when we talk about God, we're like, no, you're a light in the darkness. Jeremiah says, no, you have made everything dark around me. The psalmist talks about how God makes our path straight, but Jeremiah talks about how God makes his path crooked. and. Um, I think that's really, really important for us to recognize that in our biblical history, faithful followers of God throughout time and space have lamented to God, expressed like deep, deep anger and frustration and grief to God. And even though a lot of laments might feel hopeless, the reality is, is that we're laying our laments at God's feet. And that's the most hopeful thing we can do, even if we're screaming at God you know, I think God would, ra I know, in fact, God would rather our us give him our anger and our frustration and our grief and our pain and our doubt than have us walk away from, uh, from God with like apathy, right? Like God would rather we run to him with all of those hard, hard things, our laments, than walk away with him. And so God wants our laments because God wants our hearts. But sometimes we actually don't know where to start. And so I, I think it's helpful to give people a little pathway in lament. And I call this the how yet with pathway. I write about this in my book, The Louder Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament. And if you ever go to my website, AubreySampson.com, I've got a few of my messages on lament there. You can look under sermons. But um, most laments begin with how. How long, O oh Lord, David cries out in Psalm 13 and in other Psalms, how, how long are you going to hide your face from me? How is really interesting because how is kind of a word we would use of, of someone who betrayed us? How could you? How dare you? Jeremiah actually begins the book of Lamentations by saying, how lonely lies the city, how like a widow she is. He begins one of his poems later in Lamentations by saying how the gold has lost its luster. And um, Lamentations actually in the Hebrew Bible is not called Lamentations. It's called Icha, which means how. It's the word how. That's what the book of Lamentations is actually called. How. <laughs> because Jeremiah is really like, how long, oh Lord. And what's interesting about the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is known throughout the Bible as the weeping prophet. Um you know, he has called his people to repentance, repent, repent, repent. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping other gods. Of course they don't. And so in God's judgment, what God's judgment often looks like is just handing people over to their basest desires. And so God goes, okay, you don't want to worship me. I'm going to hand you over to the gods you do worship. And what ends up happening is the Babylonians uh, take Israel captive and they set fire to the city of Jerusalem. They set fire to the temple. Actually, they ravaged the women. They kidnapped some of the elders. By month four, the Israelite people were out of food. Jeremiah actually infers that they resorted to cannibalism. I don't know if that was metaphorical or not, but he, Jeremiah says, like, I, death would be better than this suffering. So the people are in pain. It's horrific. Like, you think about some of the news we've seen of countries at war and, you know, even just horrific um suffering and, and starvation around the world. That's what God's people were feeling. And so that's why Jeremiah is like, God, 
How dare you? How lonely we are. How are you going to show up? And so I think for us in our own pain and in our own suffering, or perhaps we're lamenting biblically and prophetically over the pain of another nation, over the pain of a people group that are hurting, we can begin by asking God those same questions. How? God, how? How are you going to show up? How are you going to fix this? How long is this going to last, God? It's a very faithful way to begin your lament. It's a biblical way to begin your lament by asking God your hows. In a season of suffering and pain I was in several years ago, I actually grabbed a journal. I wrote the word how on it. And uh, I just began asking God, how how are you going to show up here? How are you going to fix this? How are you going to make this better? And I wish I had time to tell you all the ways that God showed up, but I'm telling you, God has answered each one of my hows in tremendous ways. And simply the act of giving God our hows is part of the healing process. We surrender them to him and trust that he can handle them. He's going to take care of those how questions we have. The next part of uh, lament, that's this is true of almost every lament in scripture, is every lament has a turning point, a yet, sometimes a but. Uh, Jeremiah Lamentations 3 is famous for like, look, I remember my bitterness. I remember the gall. I remember how horrific this situation is, yet I will hope in the Lord for he alone is worthy. His compassions are new every day. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah says that that yet is really the key to all laments. And we can't force it in our own spiritual lives. That yet is really something that the Holy Spirit does in us as we cry out to God, we get to the point where we go, okay, God, it's, you know what, even if you never answer my prayers, even if you never change the situation around the globe, even if you never meet me the way I want you to, even if the prodigal never comes home, even if the diagnosis never change, yet I will hope in the Lord because Jesus is my prize and Jesus is my treasure and Jesus is the thing I'm after. It's really deep, mature faith to get to that point where we're like not worshiping God for blessings and bonuses, but we're worshiping God for God's sake alone. And that's what lament leads to that deep, deep place of yet where in our hearts, we say, you know what? All that matters is Jesus. So I am not going to walk away from the God who has been faithful to me, even in my most difficult, harrowing hour, yet I will put my hope in the Lord. And then the last thing that lamenters do all throughout scripture is remember that God is with them. They remember God's withness with them. God's Emmanuel presence. Jeremiah says in uh, Lamentations 3, I think it's verses 55 through 58. I, I called on the Lord and he answered me. He came near. He said, do not fear. God took up my case. God is with us. He is saying, God is with me. Even though it's horrible, even though my people are suffering, even though I'm suffering, I know that God is with me. Sometimes in our grief and our pain, we ask that age old question, where is God? But it's actually not the right question to ask because it assumes something false about God. It assumes that God is a distant God or a deistic God or a puppet master God. But our God, Jesus, is an incarnate God, an Emmanuel God. He is with us in our heartache and our lament. So remember those things in 2024. How yet with the promise of God's withness in your pain? Hey, thanks for sticking around. Loved having you with us this new year, this uh, very, I think this, yeah, the very first episode of 2024. Be sure to stick around. I'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Rom, who's not here, I'm Aubrey Sampson. I should probably just say for Aubrey Sampson, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.